0: Hear the word of God from John chapter 10. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. So Jesus said, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flee. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Can we begin in a, in a word of prayer this morning? We pray with me. Father, I, I, I'm so humbled. I'm so humbled, God, by, by this, this moment and uh, by, by this work that you have called me to do. Um, and God, I'm, I'm so humbled by your word. And, and, and God, that it, it speaks for itself. It speaks for itself, so what, what, what can I add to it? Nothing. God, and so, so may, I just be, may I just be faithful. God, would, would, may I be unimpressive this morning so that in my weakness, in my weakness, the church may see your greatness, your strength. God, may you reveal your word to people here this morning. Would you open their hearts to hear it? I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. So, uh, so, so, Lawrence and, and Danny and John, so, so some people have asked me, you know, how, did, as, as this all was coming up, just going through this process of ordination, you know, the, the connection between John 10 and, and the sheep and the shepherds and, you know, ordination, pastors, shepherds, you guys planned that? Did you think that, did you really think that through? Like, what, what was the process like? And I was even have a conversation with Danny and he was like, wow, did, did we really do it? Like, how did that happen? I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Uh, some of us were sitting in, uh, in Lawrence's, Pastor Lawrence's office, and we had uh, the, the, the next six months of sermons picked out. And so Danny and I are sitting in, in Lawrence's office, and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm starting to plan through what my, my preaching, this preaching series. Uh, which ones do you want? You guys go ahead and pick. And then Lawrence is like, all right, Eric, which one? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. He's like, all right, John ten, John ten, perfect, John ten. So, that's that's the kind of forethought that went into this a- ahead of time. So, so just so we're very clear, uh, God God is providential, and this worked out really well for me. So, um, and so so, uh, I just want to go ahead and, and jump straight into this. So, so last week. Last week, we saw in in John 9, a man who was born blind experience a life-changing encounter with Jesus, if you remember. A man born blind who was able to see because of this encounter with Jesus. Now, we can marvel at this encounter, and we should, we should, because the man was healed and his vision restored, right? But it's likely that many of us walked away Sunday morning unimpressed by this. Because as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And that can also happen to us toward Jesus if we're not careful. But what we also need to understand is that the greater miracle is not the opening of physical eyes. Though though we should want that. Together as a church, we got to to pray for those who are are experiencing this this chronic illness, chronic pain, and we got to lay hands on them and pray over them. And we should do that. We should continue to pray. pray Pray for healing. We should want that. But the greater miracle, the greater miracle is that Jesus opened this man's spiritual eyes to the salvation, to the hope that he has in Jesus. Now, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you see see the people of God doing amazing, incredible, supernatural things. I mean, even even seeing someone, a prophet laying over and raising a man from the dead. But that that was temporary healing. What we're talking about here, this, this is only the work of, only God can open a man's spiritual eyes to see the goodness, that he, the hope that he has. That he, his salvation is in Jesus alone. Only God can do that. Now the reason I refer back to the story of the blind man as being healed is because it gives us context for our passage this morning. So let's just do a quick run-through of what unfolded so we, so we can remember here. So a blind man is healed by Jesus right? And, and you would think this would be cause for celebration. He's healed. But instead, the Pharisees come and they put this man on trial. They say, who did this to you? How did he do this? When did he do this? And, and the man says, the, the man Jesus, he, he healed me. He sent me to the pool that, that means sent and, and I went and, and I was healed and I can see. That's all I know. And so, so then the Pharisees are like, this, this is lawlessness. This is, this is un- you can't heal on the Sabbath and they even call this man's parents because they're not even sure if this man is really, was even really blind. And the parents are, are, are fearful. They're, they're saying, yes, this is our son. He, he's healed. He was blind. We don't know how he did this, but he's of age. We're, we're good. We want, we want to remain here. You ask, ask him. And so the man, the man begins to teach the Pharisees. He teaches them. That, this can't be the work of a sinner. This is the work of God. That's, that's all I can... That's all. And the Pharisees say, they're they're incensed by this. I mean, they're they're so mad. You teach us. You were born in sin. And then they cast him out. They put him in his shame and they cast him out. And that's exactly the kind of work that wicked shepherds do. Now, this morning we're going to be talking quite a bit about shepherds and sheep. And there's context to to God appointing shepherds throughout throughout the Scripture. We're, We're going to need to do a little digging here, but there's context for this. If you think of a shepherd, you might think of Psalm 23, or or you might think of the the work of Moses, or, or the work of David. Or maybe especially you think of Jesus in John 10. He's the good shepherd. To highlight the importance of the shepherd role throughout Scripture, John Piper makes this point. He says, God has always called men to be shepherds of his people. In other words, he has ordained that between himself and us there be a human shepherd. In the Old Testament, the leaders of his people are called shepherds. In the New Testament, he calls men to be pastors and teachers. So the role is not one foreign to to those who know the biblical story. It's all all over the place. I mean, it's in in 1 Samuel, and Psalms, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and and John, and Hebrews, and 1 Peter. This idea of shepherd and and people shepherding God's flock is, is all over the place. But this morning, let, let's take a look at Ezekiel 34, because, because scholars believe that Ezekiel 34 sets the tone for what Jesus is doing in John 10. And so we're going to read a section of it this morning. So this is from Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Now we're going to skip ahead to verses 10 through 12. "Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sh- feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness." Now, I don't have time to to go through and just exegete this whole passage, but but what I want us to see here are three things, and we're going to do this quickly. So the first point is, is, God appoints human leaders to partner with him in stewarding what belongs to him. God appoints human leaders to partner with him in stewarding what belongs to him. In this case, people. God has a people, and he calls them sheep. And sheep need a shepherd. So God has appointed shepherds to shepherd his sheep. It's pretty good alliteration, right? God has appointed shepherds to shepherd his sheep. You can say that five times fast and you still get it. It's a good one. Point number two. The shepherds lord their authority over the sheep unjustly and for selfish gain. Instead of tending and feeding and seeking and guiding and leading and caring for, these shepherds feed themselves. They allow the weak to grow weaker. They allow for the sheep to be scattered. They're left to wander. They're left into the fields to be be taken over by predators. They neglect the most basic purpose that a shepherd has, to care for the flock. And instead of, of caring for them, they became themselves like predators to the sheep. Or maybe you could liken them to thieves and robbers, which is what John does, or Jesus does. There's a, a TV miniseries that came out back in 2001 called Band of Brothers, it's an incredible series dramatizing the major events of Easy Company, of the U.S. Army 101st Airborne Division during World War II. I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing show if you haven't seen it. And the first epi- episode of the series is, is this flashback to the brutal training that Easy Company endures as they're preparing to enter the war of their lives. And th- there's a brief scene toward the end of the episode. Easy Company and the rest of the 101st have been stationed in England, and, and they're about to be commissioned out to, to literally paratro- they're, they're going to jump out of a plane, and when they land, they're going to be in a war zone, right? But then there's, there's a, a, a big storm that's going on in Normandy, and so, so they're delayed a day, so they have to wait. And then in the episode, the scene flashes to Major Winters, who, who is the leader of Easy Company, and he's driving First Lieutenant Buck Compton, he's a new character that's just introduced, around camp in an open cabin military jeep. An, an open cabin military jeep. Now, my, I, my, uh, my father-in-law, who is a, 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 Marine, a retired Marine, is here, and, and the best I could do is an open cabin military jeep. I couldn't give you the specific name of the vehicle, but I didn't, didn't want to embarrass myself, so, um, so I, I just wanted you to, to get the visual of, of what's going on. And and there's this exchange. Major Winters is chiding Buck for gambling with his platoon. That's, that's the situation. And so Buck says, are you mad because they like me? Because I'm spending time getting to know my soldiers? You've been with your, these guys for what, two years? I've been here for six days. Winters shoots back, you're gambling, Buck. So what? Soldiers do that. And I don't deserve to be reprimanded for it. Then Winters asks the piercing question that that gets to his point for why the reprimand is warranted and also, I think, provides the concluding comments between the good shepherd and the kind of shepherd that God is condemning here. He asks, What if you'd won? Buck doesn't get it. Maybe you don't either. What if you'd won? Winters parks the vehicle, gets out, and turns back in a moment only Hollywood can create. I always wish I could just walk off after a comment like this, but it never works out that way. There's always somebody else who falls in, right? And Winter says, never put yourself in a position where you can take from these men. Never put yourself in a position where you can take from these men. Put another way, he's saying, these men have an enemy waiting to destroy them. Never put yourself in a position to join their adversary. That's not what God's shepherds are supposed to do. They're not supposed to be the adversaries. They're not supposed to partner. Those who partner with the adversaries are are enemies of God, and that's what God is saying here. You have become my opposition. That's the kind of shepherds the people of Israel had, ones who would steal and kill and destroy, but they needed one who would protect and nurture, one who would give life, who would care for the the lost and the wandering, who would bring them in to, to protect them and restore them. If we had kept reading Ezekiel 34, we'd see the Lord say in verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture. Which leads us to our third point here. God says that he will be their shepherd, and his central task will be one of gathering and restoring. Gathering and restoring. He will gather his sheep and deliver them in peace. Now this is important. Anytime you see the Lord, anytime you see Lord written in the Old Testament in all caps, it always means the very name of God. Or, or in our case, in, in Ezekiel 34, it says, The Lord God, and God is in all caps. It always means the very name of God. The YHW. It was, it was so holy, so revered, that no one would even utter it. If you put that name on a piece of paper, that piece of paper was, was seen as, as holy because it had the name of God on it. Now, I don't want to to jump into too much of this because Pastor Josh already talked about this when he talked about the I Am sayings a couple of weeks ago. But the God who created all things is saying, my sheep need a real shepherd. They don't need one who understands the idea of justice. They need one who himself is justice. They don't need one who can provide perishable food. They need one who himself is the bread of life. And they don't need one who, who can point them where to go. They need one who himself is the way. So God says, I'm putting my name down. You need me. I will be your shepherd. But then in verse 24, it says something very interesting. God says that David will be his appointed shepherd. So which is it? Is, is it going to be God? Or is it going to be this, this man, shepherd, da- servant, David? John addresses this in our our text today, and and, and Don Carson uh, helpfully notes on on this point. He says, The promised shepherd is the Lord, or the promised shepherd is the Lord's servant, David, is oddly appropriate in a book where the Word is God. He's talking about the Gospel of John. Oddly appropriate in a book where the Word is God, and the Word is God's emissary, distinguishable from Him. So is He God, or is He man? which will this promised shepherd be? The answer, simply put, is yes. Yes. Now let's go back to John 9 and 10. In John 9, we have shepherds, the Pharisees, who are, who are taking one of God's sheep, one who, who is weak that Jesus has made strong, and saying, your sinner, stay in your shame. And they cast him out to be scattered and destroyed. And what does Jesus do? Here's the main point of the section and of this sermon. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives abundant life to his sheep. If you write things down, you should write that down. Jesus is the good shepherd who gives abundant life to his sheep. And here's the main progression in in chapter 10, 1 through 18. Jesus, the good shepherd, gathers his sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, is the door to salvation. He's the gate. Jesus, the good shepherd, lays down his life to save his sheep. Jesus hears that this man has been cast out. He knows his sheep. He's come to gather the scattered, right? That's that's what God said the the purpose of the the promised shepherd would do, would be. So he finds the outcast man. The outcast man listens to Jesus' voice because he belongs to Jesus' fold. He's become Jesus' disciple and so he will follow him. He listens to his voice. Some of the Pharisees, meanwhile, overhear what Jesus is saying and and they have contempt for his teaching. In John 9.40, the Pharisees say, Are we also blind? And this raises some questions for me. So, so you have the context. You have this picture, right? The Pharisees cast this man out of the synagogue community and Jesus finds him. The man listens, he believes, and then he worships Jesus. But this isn't a private exchange. This isn't, Jesus starts to to teach this man. This isn't a private exchange. It's not, it's not just Jesus and this healed man. Some of the Pharisees are are in earshot of this conversation. They say, are we also blind? What do you say about that? why 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 do the pharisees hang around why why do they continue to entertain the teaching of someone that they they reject as a false teacher they say this man's a sinner this man has a demon Yet they continue to hang around they just said we're going to make an example of you 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 person who's been healed we're going to make an example of you if anybody wants to follow jesus you're going to be cast out too just like this man that's what they're saying that's what they're communicating to this community does anybody else want to follow I didn't think so, but they continue to hang around and listen and hear from Jesus. There's a few things that I su- suspect are going on here, but first we need to understand a little bit more about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are part of the religious elite of the time, along with the Sadducees, so you have these two different groups that, uh, from, from these two different groups, they make up the Sanhedrin, who's the, the ruling class of, of the entire Jewish people. And, religiously speaking. And and the Pharisees were committed to the daily application and observance of the law, which meant they accepted the traditional elaborations of the law that made daily application more possible. And the Gospels rightly portray that the Pharisees as antagonistic toward Jesus, because they were. But Jesus ultimately doesn't get upset with the Pharisees for paying too much attention to God's law. He gets upset with the Pharisees for the lack of understanding about God's law It's not that they need to understand God's law less, they need to understand it more. In our eyes, the Pharisees are everything that Jesus condemns them for being. They are wicked shepherds who only care about their self-interest. And the Pharisees see Jesus as a threat to the teaching they desire to uphold and preserve. I mean, I mean, with, with Jesus, they just can't—they can't reconcile this with themselves. So, Jesus is presenting this picture of of godliness and purity, and 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 it's, it seems to them to be contradictory to what they understand of, of the law and what they understand to be, uh, to be what it means to be pursuing godliness and, and holiness and purity. And so they're just saying, how? I mean, they think Jesus is 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 this antinomy. They think he's just—he doesn't care about the law. Why are you healing on the Sabbath? And so so Jesus is healing unlawfully in their eyes on the Sabbath, and the man he healed gives glory to Jesus, not God. To their unseen eyes, that's a problem. They've misdiagnosed the problem, but I think we can at least understand their concern. Second, the Pharisees are being protective here. The problem is that they are acting like shepherds in the same way that God says in Ezekiel 34 that the shepherds watching over his flock are no shepherds at all. The Pharisees believe that they're the ones appointed to oversee the people of God. Jesus is a threat to this authority, and so they need to keep tabs on him. They need to see what he's up to. What they should do, though, is what John the Baptist says in John 3. The attitude of John the Baptist is... I'm willing to see my ministry shrivel so that Jesus' ministry will flourish. That's what they should be saying. But they can't do that because they think Jesus doesn't care about what they care about. Do you see the opposition here? Do you see how they've put themselves against Jesus? So the Pharisees ask, are we blind? And so Jesus tests their eyesight. Now today, the way a doctor might test someone's eyesight, I mean, you can, you can if you ever have your eyesight test, if you do that, um, we, you, you might, the doctor might have you stand a distance away and you're looking at this eye chart and you cover one eye and then you cover the other eye and you're just reading down the line and it has the big print and it goes from big to small and, and almost, almost every single eye chart I've ever seen has that big block E. It's an E. It's an E. So if, you, if you've never seen, if you, if you looked in an eye chart, or, or if you just have really bad vision, and, and you're looking at it, you're like, if you, if you guess the first letter is an E, you have a really, really, really good chance of, of being right with the first one, right? But you, if you really can't see it, you, you would be right because you're familiar with the idea, not, not necessarily because you actually see it. And so that, that's kind of what's happening here with, with the Pharisees and Jesus. He, he's saying... You're asking if you can see? Well, well, let's see. Let me give you a word picture. And the word picture that, that Jesus gives to them would be one that they would be familiar with. It's about shepherds and, and sheep. I mean this, this would be uh, common to those who, who are listening to Jesus. And so they, they should understand what he's talking about, but they don't see what he's saying. And so, so what they should see what they should see is, is, is what Jesus did right in front of their eyes. Jesus has come to gather his flock. That's, that's what Jesus is doing. That's, that's what they should see from this picture. So, so let's talk about it. In this picture, the sheepfold likely refers to a large communal enclosure where multiple families would keep their sheep. Each village would have a common walled-in fold where every evening the different shepherds from the village would, would bring all their sheep. And, and so these families would, would hire an under-shepherd or gatekeeper to watch over the sheep pen until they'd return. I was talking to Danny earlier this week and, and saying, in this picture, if, if I was to be in this picture, if, if I'm not a sheep, the person that, that I would say that I want to be or that I am is, is the gatekeeper. Because the gatekeeper also has the responsibility of recognizing who the shepherd is. And the shepherd, he, he, he's the one who lets the shepherd in. He says, that this, this is the shepherd. This is the true shepherd. And that's really what shepherding ministry is all about, is, is pointing the sheep to the true shepherd, saying, he, he has come. That's what I'm doing here. So um, that's, that's what I would say I, I would want to be doing. But um, Now, there's a, there's a clear contrast that Jesus is making here between the shepherd and the thieves and robbers. These unauthorized people enter and brutalize the sheep. That's, that's their purpose. By contrast, the, the shepherd knows his sheep. He's recognized by the watchman and the sheep alike, and he leads them out for their own good. So the thieves and robbers, who we're saying are, are the Pharisees in, in this scenario, are consumed by self-interest. They, they're wanting to protect themselves and their authority and what, what, what they stand on. But the shepherd, on the other hand, is sheep-focused, he cares about the interests of his sheep. That the sheep know the voice of the shepherd implies that there, there are multiple flocks in the fold. So if, so if you think of this big enclosure, there's, there's multiple shepherds, multiple flocks. And, and one of the shepherds is coming in and he's calling them out. And they would and they, they do this. They would do this one by one. He's doing this one by one. One by one, he's calling out his sheep. And, and some commentators even, even suggest that uh, shepherds that, that really know their flock, they, they might even have these, these personal nicknames for each sheep. And so as they're calling out, they, you know, blacky or, or, you know, the, the has black spots on or, or the long ears or something, you know, that, that something to show a level of intimate, there's, there's a level of intimacy in the relationship the shepherd has with the sheep, which, which Jesus refers to in, in verses 14 and 15 when he says the sheep know the shepherd and the shepherd know the sheep just like the father knows the son and the son knows the father. That's, that's the kind of intimacy the kind of relationship that, that Jesus is talking about. And so after the shepherd calls out his sheep, he, he then leads them on by his own voice. It's it's not that somebody he doesn't have a, a sheepdog that's coming to, to push the sheep along. The sheep are listening. The shepherd is going before them, and the sheep are following his voice. Jesus' sheep know his voice. And so so we see this happen in John 9. The healed man says about Jesus. He's the man Jesus, is what he says. And and then and then he says he's a prophet. And then, he says he's from God, and then he says he's Lord, and he worships him. That's the progression that we see in John 9. Jesus' sheep, this man is Jesus' sheep, but but the Pharisees don't understand. They don't understand because, they don't understand not because his word picture is unfamiliar to them, but because they're not his sheep. That's why they miss it. And so as, as we see in this first section of John 10, Jesus is giving a word picture to show that he is the shepherd who's come to gather his sheep. Second, Jesus the good shepherd is the door to salvation. Now in other passages in John's gospel, Jesus would give a hard teaching. People would misunderstand him and, and most likely get offended. And then Jesus would explain what he meant further. And, and often he would intensify rather than soften his message. That's not exactly what's going on here. Jesus gives a word picture in verses 1 through 5, but instead of expanding on the story, he's he's expanding on prominent features of the metaphor. So so as you as you read through John 1 through 18, you might might ask, how is Jesus a gate in the story and a shepherd? And and how does the shepherd come to himself the door in this case? Because that's, that's what, if you just read it, literally that's, that's what you'd think he's saying. So the shepherd comes to himself the door. How does that work? And, and in that case, what would be the point of, of the gatekeeper? Like why, why would the gatekeeper need to open the door who's the shepherd, who's the door? No, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what's going on here. That's not, that's not the point. And, and so, so the point of metaphorical language is, is to use something that's familiar to help you understand something that's less familiar. And so, so the point is that you look and see Jesus doing the, the work of the Good Shepherd. So let's look for ourselves. There, there are two points I want to make about Jesus as the door. First, Jesus secures our protection and safety. Jesus as the door, again, it's, it's contrasted with the thieves and robbers. The thieves' and robbers' purposes are devastating to the sheep. But the gate symbolizes this this security and protection from from these fatal plans. And so we've already discussed the wicked work of bad shepherds, and, and the Pharisees in this case ridicule and cast out. But Jesus finds, tends, and gathers his sheep. He provides them with safety. The second point is Jesus is the entryway to life. Jesus is the entryway to life. Jesus as the door means that He is the only way to know God. And if He's the only way to know God, then He's the only way to know this abundant life that He talks about in verse 10. I think Jesus means what He says in John fourteen six: I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The kind of abundance, the kind of abundance of life that you're looking for, it doesn't come through acquisition of resources. That's not how you obtain this life. You can't buy this kind of life. Your works can't achieve it. You can't acquire it through information overload. You know, we, ha- we, have, we have abundance of information at our fingertips and in our pockets. That's not how you acquire this life. You can't do it through, through some kind of education. It's, that's not going to get you there. And you can't politicize your way to this kind of life. It doesn't come by some world leader establishing his vision for utopia. It comes by Jesus alone. And the way it comes by Jesus is not through sword, or political uprising, or even through a transfer of information, but through the objectivity of the cross to save you. Through the objectivity of the cross to save you. So the Good Shepherd searches and finds his lost sheep. He tends to their needs, he feeds them, he gives them protection and security, and ultimately he gives them life Life that only comes through him and him alone. Which brings me to my third point. Jesus has authority to save his sheep and he does this by laying down his life. When Jesus says that he is the good shepherd and that good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, we're inclined to agree, right? But we don't celebrate Jesus like he's some superhero who swoops in to save the day. And he's also not some exemplar martyr that we try to imitate. When we say we want to be like Jesus or we want to live like Jesus, that's, that's not really what we mean. Neither option is the message of the cross. And if we follow the metaphor, the good shepherd, he's willing to risk his life. But if the shepherd dies, the sheep will be abandoned, right? So is that, is that where the metaphor breaks down? If we look closer, we'll see that that's not what Jesus is saying. That's, that's not his message. Jesus is not a shepherd who puts his sheep in danger, nor is he a shepherd who is blindsided by danger that he didn't expect. He says a good shepherd is willing to risk his life, but the the flock that Jesus has come to are already in danger. Jesus came to put himself in danger's way. The world is not neutral, the world stands condemned, and Jesus has come to, to bring salvation. So he doesn't take, he gives to save. John the Baptist was right by his proclamation in John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus is doing. The Good Shepherd came to lay down his life for you. The Good Shepherd, in an amazing turn of events, becomes a sheep so that his sheep may live. And he does it because he and the Father are one. This is the work of God. This is the will of the Father. And the Son obeys the Father perfectly. Your salvation is God's pleasure. God is pleased to do this for you. He's pleased to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Jesus has secured the covenant of peace for those who will receive it. And so the message of the cross isn't death, but life. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." So Jesus has authority to lay down his life and to take it up again, which means at least two things. First, Jesus' resurrection doesn't nullify his death. It doesn't soften the blow or weaken its purpose. It's very, very necessary. Jesus' resurrection doesn't nullify his death. Rather, it validates your life. Jesus laid down his life to take it up again. Which leads us to the second point. Jesus never abandons his sheep. Jesus is still your shepherd because he lives. He's alive. He's risen. Now, now for the people who are, are listening to this message, this would be very hard. They, would, they, don't, they don't have this context. They don't, th- th- this event has not happened yet. Jesus has not gone to the cross. And, and so the, the, the schemes of man are still at work to, to do that. But, but so is the, the will of God. He is at work to, to accomplish your salvation. He has done it. His resurrection is coming. Jesus lives. And so Jesus never abandons the sheep. Shepherds, you see, are, are willing to risk their lives as a potential risk of being a shepherd. D- David did this, right? King David did this before as, as a shepherd. He he did it with lions and bears. But Jesus does this with sin and death. You see, the gospel, the gospel isn't that you no longer have an enemy because the shepherd's heroics. That's an an incomplete gospel. It's it's not this cosmic force where where good and evil come together and and both are are done with. That's not the gospel. It's It's not that you can now live however you want or do whatever you want. That's not the abundant life that Jesus is talking about. The gospel is that your greatest enemy is trampled underfoot and from the clutches of defeat the good shepherd rises to lead his flock. J.R. Tolkien created a a new word to describe this kind of moment in a story. He called it a a eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe. So so picture this, uh, uh, Eucharist, like this combination of Eucharist and catastrophe. So he says, this this is the good catastrophe. Just when you're convinced the enemy has won the day and all seems to be lost, there appears the white rider over the hillside, ready to thwart your enemy. That's what's happening. this is the greatest Eucharist, uh, e- e- catastrophe. And the point is that Jesus does not abandon his sheep. So Jesus is our good shepherd who saves us by laying down his life. But we know this, right? We, we know this. So, so what does this mean for us? There are two different kinds of sheep I want to speak to. And there's nuance here, but, but both need to hear the beauty of the gospel again and again and again. And so this first group of sheep, some, some of us, and, and hear me when I say this, some of us need to admit that we are like the Pharisees. And I'll, I'll put myself here, and, and if it's just me, then, then so be it, but some of us are like the Pharisees. The heart of the Pharisee is one of pride and self-righteousness, and even getting self-righteous about self-righteousness. One thing I, I want to push back on related to the Pharisees is our desire to characterize them. Which is, is, is very easy to do, right? It's, it's very easy to, to categorize and speak ill of a group of people that you disagree with and to scheme against them or to create a straw man for them when you don't really know them. And, and so we think we, we just have this group of Pharisees. It's just this group, we don't, we don't have names. And so, so, so the reason, or at least we think, right? We, we don't have names. We just think this group, Pharisees. And we see the, the wickedness and we, we, we agree, Jesus should condemn these people. But I want us to be careful about doing that, because we have the tendency to be just like the Pharisees. In the story of the prodigal son, don't, don't most of us identify with the older brother? We're not the ones wandering away, living recklessly, losing our inheritance. We're the ones who stay. We're diligent and devout. We, we read our Bibles and we pray, and we'll even, we even admit we, we should do it more. We think because we love missions, we want to reach the triangle, and we're willing to go to the hard-to-reach places, and we uphold God's Word, and we we hold to certain convictions convictions that we're the good Christians. But if we're not careful, our zeal for good things and for the tribes we identify with can become the very thing we think makes us right with God. Those who have a pharisaical heart struggle to accept God's grace. Those who have a pharisaical heart struggle to accept God's grace because they don't think they need it. Elitism does this to you. And that's why the condemnation that Jesus gives the Pharisees is the very grace they need. Jonathan Edwards said that pride is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all sins. If you're unaware that you have it, you're probably in good company. Jesus rightly condemns the Pharisees for their blindness and pride. They need to hear that their fervor for God's law doesn't bring salvation. Jesus brings salvation. They stand condemned. Their need, their need is my need. I don't need better theology or better exegesis, though those things are good. I need to cling to the good shepherd for life. I need to hear his voice and to follow and to trust him. Isn't it interesting how we can think the elitism of the pharisaical heart can make them seem like the worst of the worst, when they ironically think they're the best of the best? But they are the worst of the worst, and so am I. But what we learn from the pharisees is that even with condemnation, grace is offered. So let me tell you how I see that really quick. First, if you look back at John nine sixteen, the pharisees are divided about Jesus. Some of them are not convinced that the center explanation adds up. I mean, they're saying, are, are we sure? Are we sure that this, this is right? Are we sure that, I mean, how, how else, like, how, how can we deny the signs here? Like, this seems like it's from God. Are we sure? Is it possible we've gotten this wrong? That's not pride, friends. That's the voice of a heart that's being softened. You see, God can overcome the hardest of hearts. Second, remember the story of Nicodemus, the Pharisee? Did you already forget? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Pastor Danny talked about this. He said that, that God is, it was working in Nicodemus. And, and isn't it so fitting that, that God is... It, Jesus addresses Nicodemus exactly in a way that he needed to hear it. The leader of Israel is being treated like a sheep. He's saying, you're the leader of Israel, you don't understand these things? How am I supposed to talk to you about heavenly things if you don't even understand earthly things? To us that would be harsh. But to Nicodemus, that's the very saving work he needed. The question for for any Pharisee is, will you let go of your pride and admit that you're a sheep? Or will you harden your heart? Regardless, God will be glorified. God will get the glory because Jesus will be exalted. That's the work of God. Jesus exalted, sheep redeemed. And some of those sheep are Pharisees. Third, there's a Pharisee that you may have forgotten about because you only ever think of him as the new man. A man of Tarsus, a Roman citizen. He was highly educated and raised a Pharisee. Luke tells us in Acts that he studied under Rabbi Gamaliel, a leading Jewish thinker of the time. Paul, you know Paul's story. You know, you know the the radical encounter that he had with Jesus. How fitting that also Paul had to be blinded before the scales were peeled back from his eyes, before he could really see the glory of God. And if you know Paul's story, then you know that God can take the chief of sinners and bring him under the banner of grace. If the good shepherd can save Paul, he can save any of us. And if you're like the Pharisees, if if you felt your heart perk up at any of these words, then hear this, hear your condemnation so so that you will receive the grace that Jesus gives you this unmerited favor that, that God has. Second, there, there are other sheep who, who need tending to in here. Some of us have been hurt by the other sheep in the fold, and perhaps even by bad under-shepherding. And you're wondering, what, what does the good shepherd have to say about this? Maybe for, for some of you, you're, you're experiencing the difficulties of marriage, or you're watching this narrative unfold with your parents, and you're asking, God, is this, is this the abundant life you promised? Am I even one of your sheep? I mean, th- this person is supposed to, to be loving me, and loving you, and, and that yet they treat me this way? Or we, why, why should I feel this way? Why, why, do I, why, why is this so hard? And where's the help? Or maybe you've been given the gift of singleness, but you're wondering, is, is the church really a place for me? Because as one of, one of my friends once put it, the church is, is very married. That's funny to to some of you, that's great, but others of us, it's probably not funny. And and, and the point is that you may feel isolated, you may feel neglected by the church. You may say, "It's, it's even hard, it's hard to come back here. If I didn't, if I didn't have other friends with me, I don't know that I would. And that breaks my heart. It saddens me. And, and so, so even, even to, to, to push back on, on you marrieds and, and you marrieds with, with young kids, because I, I can say this because I have, I, I'm in this situation. If, if your only relationship with, with some of the, the, uh, the singles in our church is that they watch your kids and that's it, invite them over for dinner. Have them over. Get, get to know them. Love them. Serve them. Care about them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Or maybe you're struggling to even keep coming to church because you've been burned or discouraged by the hypocrisy and inconsistencies. And you're asking yourself, is, is this place really for me? Is, is the church really a place where I can be known and loved and have purpose? Are these people really who they say they are? I mean, why do I keep coming? Sh- should I keep coming back? It's so hard to come back. Why do I do this? And the best answer I can give you is because you're his sheep. And because Jesus truly is the Good Shepherd. You keep coming back, you keep holding out hope, you place your trust in God's leading because the church is the place where you hear his voice. You keep walking through the valley of the shadow of death because you follow his leading and because he doesn't abandon you. You hold out hope because he is the risen Lord who has secured your salvation. You see sheep, according to John 10, know his voice and they follow his lead. Even today, God appoints shepherds to lead and guide His flock. But you must know that, that every single one of them, which now includes me, is really an under-shepherd. I'm really an under-shepherd. The most basic role of a shepherd is to care for the sheep. And as an under-shepherd, the best way I can do that is by recognizing that the shepherd, recognizing the shepherd myself and, and pointing you to him, pointing myself to him. Jesus is your true shepherd, and he has given his life so that you might have yours. So I want to encourage you this morning. Keep, keep listening. Keep following. Because he has come to give you life. He's come to give you abundant life, and there is no other way but through him. Will you believe? Will you follow him? I want to invite the the band to come up, and, and as I invite the band to come up, um, I just want to encourage you this morning, if, if any of you if, you, if you need prayer for, for any reason about anything, or you, or you just need someone to be with you, we have, we have um, people in, in yellow lanyards stationed around the, the room. And so would you, would you be so bold as to find them and, and to go to the Lord with them, to be in communion together, to, to, love, to allow them to love you, allow them to serve you? Would you pray with me? Father, we, we are so humbled by your word. We are so grateful that you, you have done this work and you continue to do this work. Even, even when we experience the, the pain and sorrows of this life, God, we know we know that you are with us. We know that you are working and that you are doing the work of the Good Shepherd to bring us life, to bring us into green pasture. That's what God says, that you, you say you will do this. God, will you do this? Some of us need to hear your voice, God. Would you Would you open our hearts to hear it? Would you do the work that you've done to the the man in in John 9? Would you do that in some of our hearts this morning, God? Would you you open our eyes to see you that we might say, Lord, I believe. God, may we worship worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.